It's a new episode of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, host, sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And joining me, as he does every week, Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. How you doing, Terry? I am well, David. Good. Hey, uh, off the top, we want to mention your upcoming speaking engagement at the Niles McKinley Library coming up early in March here. It's almost March already. Do you want to talk about that for a second in case yeah, people were able to swing by? Yeah, it's in the, it's in Niles at the My, Niles McKinley Library, March 7th, 6.30 p.m. Been there before. It's really a, it's a neat old building. It's right next to the library and uh, it's like this old stage and something like that. It feels like, feel like you kind of step back in the time since I guess there's a, you could imagine a William McKinley, one of the old guys coming out to actually speak there. So uh, I love history. It's a good place. It's free. Um, you can bring books for me to sign, preferably at least one that I wrote. Um, and uh, other than that, that is the deal. So I talk, take questions, meet people. It's a lot of fun. All the library things are my favorite things to do. And you've been drawing some big crowds to some. Yeah, we really have been. It's been really uh, fun. When there and uh, uh Larry Pant. The reason I mentioned the we is my friend Larry Pantages, who used to be my sports editor at the Beacon. He comes with me for most of them. He's been my uh, researcher on my last several books. So, and he ends up helping me sometimes set up extra chairs and things like that, which is a good problem to have. So come on down. We could find out. Like, are you among the eight thousand people on the waiting list for Brown season tickets? Did you see that, David? <laughs> I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. So the Browns, uh, why don't you talk about it, Terry? The Browns sent out an email today announcing yeah, I mean, that of all the different news. going up for season ticket holders. So. Yeah. What, five bucks for this and 10 bucks for that. And, and like when you got, when you got 8,000 people on a waiting list for a team that's had one running season since 2007 or what, three since they came back, that tells you, David Campbell. That you're paying for Deshaun Watson's contract. <laughs> it tells you they could, you know, they could pretty much kind of do what they want. And yeah. uh, it, it it's an astounding thing. I know a lot of the NFL teams do have wedding lists for season tickets. I mean, he has the advantage of having eight or nine home games per year. And because it isn't as, as big of a, a price. In fact, a lot of times when you hear the guardians, for example, have, uh, you know, say 10,000 season tickets, it really isn't 10,000 people that bought 81 games. They are putting together people who bought those 20 game packages into like combining them in four to count as one, that kind of stuff. So, um, but the orange helmets, I've said for many years, you could put up orange helmet on the 50 yard line, charge 20 bucks and 50,000 people to show up to stare at it. That's true. And uh, just to recap that, Terry, this is just happening on Monday afternoon as we're mm-hmm. taping this. But uh, it looks like from what Mary Kay Cabot has written about the email that came out, 40% of the stadium will increase by only by five bucks a game. And another 30% will be adjusted by 10 bucks or less per game. So uh, and the Browns have always said they're in the bottom third of average ticket prices. So, um, yeah, we'll see. It's And, and to be fair to them, um, the stats that come out from other places too show them to be uh, really in the bottom third. And then, of course, Jimmy Haslam just bought into the, uh, officially bought into the Milwaukee Bucks. Probably in the, in the re, I've been trying to get the exact total, but I'm thinking it's at least $750,000. I mean, $750 million. What the yeah, heck? Yeah, that would add right. up because, 
the the guys who when they bought the team, I think it was worth about five hundred and fifty million when they bought it. And now yeah. they're saying three point five billion. So if you mm-hmm. so the Haslam part of that would be twenty five percent. So that's that's about seven hundred and fifty million, isn't it? Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. And uh, there's a long story in Barron's, the business thing. It it gets a little convoluted, but actually remember the the, the Haslam's pilot flying J every year is getting sold more and more to Warren Buffett's um, Berkshire Hathaway company. Now, try not to let your eyes go over, but it's interesting to tell you what they're doing. So originally for like 40% of the company, uh, they got $3 billion. That's what Buffett paid. And now they're adding another 30 to 40% at about $6 billion more. So there's like $9 billion right there. Kind of like the kind of math you have to do, Dave. So the fact that they're adding to their sports holdings is not a surprise because uh, Pilot Flying J continues to uh, pump out the gas into dollars, and only now it's uh, owned by Warren Buffett, primarily, I think about 80%. Well, we went into the wrong business, didn't we, Terry? We should have gone into sports franchise ownership. I think we could have done pretty well. They just go up, up, and up, and like everybody says, there's only 32 NFL teams, and and they're not making any more as of right now. So the, well, I remember it's when, a great uh, business to be in. When Paul Dolan, I wrote a book called Dealing. Um, it's still out there. And it, it, a lot of it, it came out, I think, in 2008 or seven, And a lot of it had to do with kind of the, the inner workings of the tribe. And, um, and when I was talking to Paul Dolan at the time, when they bought the team for like $320 million, this was back in 99, it was the second highest price ever paid play for paid for a major league team, and the highest was the Dodgers it was like three hundred twenty three million. So, I mean, right now contracts themselves are worth are worth <laughs> more than that. Think about that for a moment. Yeah. But Paul, I was talking to Paul Dolan. They had actually bid on the Reds before that, and they lost out. I forgot who did buy the Reds at the time. But as he said, at this point, there's only thirty of them. And it's kind of like if a Rembrandt or, you know, this famous piece of Picasso came on the market, um, there aren't any more coming. I mean, granted, once in a while there's an expansion thing, but in general, that's if you want one, you you pay what the market is. And, of course, pro sports have proven to be the ultimate buy and hold thing if you want to just – that's where they really make a lot of their money when they cash out. Yeah. Go ahead, Terry. Or, or you sell to Warren Buffett. <laughs> two, two not bad options yeah. there. So, all right, Terry. Um, so yeah, let's. Why don't we stay on the Browns since we started with the Browns? And I want to get into some Cavs. I want to get your thoughts on Evan Mobley and what you see for him. Uh, we got a couple more letters that came in um, on people playing against notable athletes. We'll talk about some spring training for the Guardians. We got we got a pretty good lineup here today. So, the uh, you've been writing By a lot of the way. I'm sorry. Yeah, good. I'm gonna That's interrupt. Because it's eight, maybe it's just me. The eight thousand people on the waiting list for Brown so, season tickets. Yeah, Brown season tickets. So we go back to will signing, you know, Deshaun Watson. And I understand. I heard from a lot of people very upset by that or whatever. But I remember the Browns said that they didn't really see a big difference in their business on that. Now I expected them to say that regardless of what happened. But assuming that what they said in their press release about 8,000 season tickets on the wedding, eight people, or in other words, 8,000 people looking for the tickets on the wedding list, 
I guess that's the truth. And I wouldn't mind hearing from people on why do you think, seriously, the Browns have a waiting list of 8,000 people wanting season tickets, given their history of futility? Serious question. Yeah, if you want to send us your thoughts on that, if you're a Browns fan and you're either on the list or you have theories, send it to sports at cleveland.com and put Terry's talking. So, Terry, the, yes. the oh, stadiums I'm sorry. are getting – Yes, oh, I'm One more yeah, time, one more time. And if you're on the list waiting, yeah. we definitely want to hear from you. We're no, casting no judgments, no aspersions. We just want to know why. So, Terry, we've seen this the last – 10, 15, 20 years where sports are becoming a TV experience with the HD TVs and the mic'd up and everything like that. And the stadiums are getting smaller. Mm-hmm. So I think one reason there's so many fans on the waiting list is because I think the people who have had them keep them for generations and pass them down to family members. And the other thing is there's less seats at First Energy Stadium than there used to be. And if a new stadium gets built or if they do renovate it, there's going to be even fewer. Um, probably by a factor of five or 8,000, maybe more. Um, they want it to be a more intimate experience, be able to charge more for the people who do come in. So those are my theories. But, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's 8,000 is a lot, isn't it? I'm just saying it's 8,000 people <laughs> want Brown season tickets after they went 7-10 and 10 and signed Deshaun Watson. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. All right, Terry, so the – Change in season ticket prices is not the only thing going on. There seems yeah. to be commotion and change happening out there ever since the season ended. And like you said, when you're seven and ten, you've got Deshaun Watson, a quarterback who basically played six games part of a season, didn't look great doing it. It's been it's been it's been a renovation project ever since the season ended. You have been writing about the coaching changes, why you think they're working. Why don't you talk about why you think these are the right moves? and what you think will happen because of these moves. Okay, a little history lesson. First of all, Andrew Barry was hired two weeks after Kevin Stefanski. Now, Barry was actually in Cleveland the first time with Stefanski interviewed back when Freddie Kitchens got the job. Uh, Barry and Stefanski developed a relationship. So this isn't like they were – this was not like when Ray Farmer and Mike Patton were slapped together by the Haslam's and really other than to say hello, they didn't know each other. They didn't know each other. They were where they realized they, they knew they could work together. So that was uh, that part is there. But nonetheless, uh, Stefanski was hired first. It took a couple of weeks. In fact, they interviewed one or two other people besides Barry for the job. Uh, and in the meantime, um, Kevin was out hiring a bunch of coaches right away. So by the time Barry got the job, like Joe Woods was in place and Van Pelt was here. And I think, well, prefer they kept him. And when they kind of looked at the staff later on, as things went wrong the last couple of years, realized that, you know, who did Kevin Stefanski really know? Think about this. He had only worked for one team, Minnesota. So remember, Prefer had been in Minnesota before. Joe Woods had been in Minnesota. Now, Bill Callahan was somebody they jumped on right away when he became available. Now, he had never worked uh, with, with, with Stefanski. But it wasn't like Stefanski had this wide network of people uh, to grab for coaches. And furthermore, he didn't have a GM in place to go get somebody. What I didn't mention, my article, or Paul D. Podesta, really, who did he know in the NFL? 
Now, granted, you can you know call around and find out. So as things this past year came up and they realized they have to really upgrade the coaching staff, it was a collaborative effort between the front office and Kevin Stefanski. And furthermore, I believe, I don't know, Browns will never admit it or say it, the front office was pushing, look, you, you haven't fired anybody in three years. And there's no way in the world when you hire that many coaches in a place like the NFL that all of them should just keep their jobs. My goodness, you know, uh, in 2018, that excuse me, 2019, that was the year before um, Kevin arrived. In 2019, Prefer's first year as special teams coach, I believe they ranked 13th, so they were very good. But in 20 and 21, they had back-to-back seasons ranking of 28 and 30, and yet he came back in 22. That, to me, is like, no, you're gone. Well, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I'm so glad you pointed out when you are writing the last few days, Terry, you think of the, the Steelers and you think of stability. You think of the Ravens and you think of stability. But uh-huh. as you pointed out, John Harbaugh in Baltimore just got rid of Greg Roman, a John Carroll guy who basically was the, the offensive coordinator there for the last several years. It was the offensive coordinator for an MVP. Mm-hmm. league MVP in Lamar Jackson, and he has been shown the door, and now they have hired Todd Munkin, from, who just won back-to-back national championships at Georgia. If you have a chance, Jerry, and, and the listeners, if you have, if you get a minute, go back and read a column that Doug LaMaurice, our colleague, did from the Peach Bowl, where he talked to Todd Munkin, who also was with the Browns, as you know. Um and they had no interest in anything he had to say when he was here. I mean, this guy, his his mantra is basically, I'm here to win. If I don't win, I'm going to get fired, and I'm going to find a way to make this offense win. <laughs> and so the the Ravens are about to bring – they're bringing in one of the best in the business. Um, this guy's been around. He's coaching the NFL, coaching college, has success pretty much everywhere he's been. Uh, he's going to – whoever the quarterback is next year, he's going to have some fun with them and, and come up with some creative answers. So the Ravens are elevating their coaching staff. And you you mentioned that Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh has had four offensive coordinators, I think, in his 16, 16 seasons. Yeah. 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 And Harbaugh's had seven in about the same time frame. Seven. Now, I think that's extreme. But I think a lot of these coordinators often are like one-term presidents. You know, sort of four or five years and their style or whatever it is wears off a little bit. And also it's a way that the front office maybe can change some of the dynamics of personality and that without getting rid of the head coach because these coordinators work so closely with the players. And that was partly behind the moves. Schwartz is uh, certainly going to be now sterner and more fiery than Joe Woods. And anybody named Bubba, you know, is not exactly going to sit there with his head buried in a play sheet. So um, he is going to, you know, do the same thing in the special team side. And now I found that it was interesting to see what they did to tell everybody about what the Browns did on the offensive side now. Well, so just to recap, you mentioned Bubba Ventron, the new special teams coach, Mm -hmm. Um, Jim Schwartz, which we've talked about being brought in as the defensive coordinator. Now, within the last few days, Bill Musgrave is going to be senior offensive assistant for the Browns. And you mentioned the Stefanski connections. Uh, Musgrave and Stefanski were with the Vikings from 
2011 to 13, if I remember yeah. correctly. Right. And, and Kevin was extremely young back then, early in his career, and Musgrave was the, was the OC, the offensive coordinator. And just for some background, uh, in 2012, Adrian Peterson ran for 2,000 yards with mm-hmm. Bill Musgrave um, on the staff there. And so Nick Chubb is not going to be phased out of the offense for those who are chanting run the ball at the Browns. I think this isn't going to be a drastic departure from what Kevin Stefanski and Alex Van Pelt have been running. But it, this is another guy where they can say, hey, listen, how, how can what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And another voice to collaborate with, someone who has experience and, and has had success. That's the I way don't, you see it, right, I don't Terry? think this is a token hire at all. I think he's going to be very involved. I just posted a story a little while ago. Um, you know, these guys, they know their jobs are on the line. They, no matter what the Browns say, they had to be at bet, you know, to be put it kindly, disappointed on what they saw from Watson when he throws five touchdown passes in six games and three of them are in one half in Washington. I don't care that it was seven hundred days and that nobody, including me, I've been. In fact, I was getting criticized early on. I kept saying this is going to be hard for him. This is going to be hard for him. But we also didn't see any tremendous improvement as time went on. The, I throw out that first game in Houston where, you know, he looked like he never saw football before. But after that, it was just real rocky. And there were some bad weather games and a few things here and there. But, you know, the fact is the offense was better with Jacoby Brissett than it was with Deshaun Watson. That doesn't mean Brissett's a better quarterback than Watson. But when he looked at how the two of them played – so I believe they really wanted somebody to come in here and add something to this offense. So they get, so in other words, they don't want a big learning curve next year. They want this thing ready to go. So I have to ask you, Terry, given all these changes we've been talking about, coaches, the coaches have egos. And I think Kevin Stefanski probably has a smaller one than a lot of other guys in the profession, yeah. but who, who made these changes happen? Do you think that it, when you talk to the Browns at press conferences, it's always we this and we that, but somebody had to say, all right, we got to change this. This isn't working. We got to upgrade the staff. Did it come from Jimmy Haslam and D Haslam? Did it come from Andrew Berry? Did it come from Stefanski? Do you think it came from all of them? Who, who do you think was the kind of prime mover that made all these things set in motion? Well, you know, one thing about Stefanski, I mean, excuse me, about the Haslams, if you want to fire somebody, generally they're on board with that. I mean, that that's kind of how it works. Secondly, I really believe that because Andrew Barry was not involved with the first set of hires of coaches, he really did want to be involved this time. And why does that matter? Because he is a guy basically picking the players. And it's important that the GM, the coordinators, and the coach, head coach, are all on the same page of what type of players do we want to run the various systems. So. Schwartz, remember, worked with Barry in Philadelphia for that one year where Barry was in between um, his two stints in Cleveland. And Schwartz, of course, has the big rep of, you know, head coach of Detroit. And he did get to the Lions, I believe, to the playoffs the one year. And also uh, a lot of success in Tennessee, a lot of success in Philadelphia as a coordinator. Uh, Bubba Ventrone had played here and just he was certainly – I guess if there's a hot hot special teams coach, he was it. 
And they were blessed because they were able to use that assistant head coach title to get him in here. I I really believe that uh, uh, I doubt the front office was a huge prefer fan. You know, I just don't buy that at all. And I think on this one, it's like we want one more kind of older guy to come in who has some real thoughts that would be able to work with Kevin. And um, – because Kevin's still going to call the plays, but you know, it's Van Pelt, who they really believe is is a very good one-on-one kind of quarterback coach, can now have more time with that. And I think Musgrave will hit, as Mary Kay wrote about, running some meetings and that. And then I also heard that they're going to look at a lot of different things, like uh, play at a faster tempo, uh, whether it's no huddle or just snap the ball quicker. Why and we used to ask this a lot of time. Why wasn't Sean Deshaun running the ball more? Just simply run. You know, not run into 14 tacklers, but just run and get out of bounds. You know, pick up some yardage. These quarterbacks now in the NFL, they run for they run for 300, 500 yards in a year or more. Um, why aren't Why wasn't he doing that? So those are things I think they really want to, and they want to have this stuff ready to go. So you think it was, you know, the Haslam saying, "Hey, fix this. We have to be ready." Yeah. And then Andrew Berry, Paul D. Podesta, and Kevin Stefanski saying, all right, let's get to work here. That's how you think it all went down. Yeah, that's what I okay. do. And I, and I think that um, there wasn't anybody fighting the Haslam's on that because just look at the results. And remember this, as I mentioned before, Andrew Barry was not here when those most of those assistants were hired. So um, that's – which you're fine with that if you go to the playoffs. You don't – you know, Barry is not a guy with a big ego or whatever – but right now, he's like, they all know their jobs are on the line. And so, and then when you sit there and you look at the fact, I know Joe Woods got a defensive coordinator job um, under Dennis Allen with New Orleans, but Allen's a defensive coach. You know, he's really going to be assistant coordinator or whatever it is. And so I, I'm glad they did it. We'll see how it works out. It makes sense to me. Well, and they're going to be working from now until the opener to get this offense defined, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this works out. So, all right, Terry, let's take a break here. Uh, I want to talk to you about Evan Mobley. When we come back mm-hmm. from the break, we'll talk some Cavaliers. Uh, we can get into spring training. I want to get your take on the rules changes. The pitch clock has caused some controversy already in spring training. And then we have a couple more letters um, from our fans who have played against notable athletes. So uh, we'll be right back after this break on Terry's talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. We are going to get into the Cavaliers, Terry. The Cavs came out of the break later than some other teams did, it seemed like, in Atlanta the other night. But uh, they're 39-25. and 25. The, Right now, they're the number four seed in the East. If the playoffs started today, they're a game and a half behind the Sixers, six and a half behind the first place in the East Celtics. There was some uh, interesting discussion here last week, Terry. The first game back from the break, Cavs went out playing a really good team in Denver, reigning MVP. Evan Mobley has 31 points heading into the fourth quarter, and the Cavs are right there and doesn't barely see the ball in the fourth quarter. Two shots, I think, in the fourth quarter. Cavs end up losing in the fourth to, to the Denver Nuggets. And there was some discussion, and Chris Fedor, our colleague, wrote about this, about like we have got to get the ball to him. 
in that situation and, and help him help have him let us get to the finish line and help us get there. How do you feel about the way the Cavs are using Evan Mobley on a night-to-night basis? And and do you think they should change approach at all, just on a day-to-day basis? The difficult thing about Evan Mobley is, all right, I'll ask you the question. What is his one signature shot, one signature offensive move? What is it? That's a good question. Makes my point, by the way. Yeah. He does a little bit of everything. I guess that's why they call him a unicorn. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. We don't want. I I think he took six three pointers the other night. I don't. I know. He, I think he actually made two. I can live without him ever taking a three pointer. But if if you have to kind of fit in every one or two of those, so that's not it. Let's put it that way. Um, he is also not real strong in the low block. It's not like you put him down there. Uh, like Jorgic or a couple of these other guys, and throw him the ball. So he probably is if you kind of clear out some stuff on the wing and throw it to him, and then where he can go one-on-one, he's he's so quick with that first step, and that first step is like long as most people's, you know, two or three people's regular steps. And he also has the ability to, now he's starting to finish with the left hand. But that, I think, is part of the problem, where you're now saying, all right, let's just do this for for Evan. And then he does have two guards that um, dominate the ball and take a lot of shots. But it's going to be up to them. And this is where I think especially uh, Garland has to grow some to make sure that Evan gets the ball. Because, when, by the way, when Mobley and, and Allen are cooking, you notice how easy it is for these guys. I mean, the, the team just clicks. And so – I I I really believe they have to just figure out where best to get him the ball. It's a little tricky because he doesn't have he's not a three point shooter. You know, he's not a low post player. And he's getting better at his intermediate jump shots. I mean, it's almost impossible to block anything. His arms are so long too. Um, um it, it it's kind of I remember when somebody told me when they when they picked him it's like he compared him to Chris Bosh and I didn't want to quite go there cuz you know Bosh is um, a borderline Hall of Famer, and uh, I don't think he's in yet, but he might be. Uh, but he's got a good chance to go there. But it was the same thing with him. It was sort of a strange game, you know. Like what was his key key things? You know, even Kevin Love, you go, okay, when he's right, he makes three pointers, he rebounds defensively, he actually has a little bit of a low post game. Uh, so that's, I think what's going to happen with, with Evan is he's going to evolve into like, what is his best shot or two? And you'll see even more of it. But since uh, I think since January one, when I looked the other day, he's averaging like 18 points shooting 56%. And finally about him, he is so team oriented and really respectful of the veterans and that the young veterans, he just doesn't demand the ball either. Right, which he needs to do more of. Yes. Yeah. One reason I was interested in talking about this, Terry, is the the Cavs have two games coming up against Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, four out of their next five are against either Boston or Miami. They they play Boston um, twice this week, and then there's two against Miami, actually both in Miami next week. But you look at the Celtics and the way the Cavs might match up against them, right? So if the Cavs are in the 4-5 game in the playoffs, they might end up playing Boston in the second round. I just started thinking like, all right, you got Brogdon as like 
the third leading scorer on that Boston mm-hmm. team. And it, Evan Mobley should be treated like he's the third offensive option on this team. And I feel like sometimes he is and sometimes he isn't. But he's he's the kind of guy – some guys, you know, they take a shot because it's late in the shot clock and, and they somebody has to shoot. But there's mm-hmm. other guys that, that you deliberately run a set for them or you – you're coming out of a timeout and you you, you mm-hmm. run a certain play for them. And I feel like there's more for the Cavs to do there with him in oh, that sure. regard, especially as we head down the stretch into the playoffs, maybe playing a team like Boston in the second round if they get out of the first round. So, oh, I don't sure. Know. I, 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 as, he's just evolving. Most of these guys in their second year in the NBA at his age, they're pretty clueless. And this guy is so poised defensively. I mean, his father. You know, we always hear about some of the fathers going the other way. His dad did a great job with him and his younger brother, who's actually played pretty well in the G League this year, I may add. I haven't watched a lot, but I saw his numbers were good. Um, in terms of this is what matters on defense. You're to be a good teammate. Um, you know, you learn to shoot with both hands, all that kind of old, old school stuff. Don't be a jerk. I mean, just because you're really good. And because I believe he was like the California player of the year. I mean, he was a high big time recruit coming out of high school and before he went to USC. So he could have been, you know, one of those divas and it's just the opposite. So he's going to continue to grow. And at 21, uh, you know, he's going to fill out. You could just see that frame. What a pick by that. I mean, two teams passed on him. And so, you know, he's almost like symbolic of the Cavs. They're still growing. They're still figuring it out. This is how, how the team is. They just didn't wake up. I mean, you look at their Jalen Brown and, and, and some of those other guys with uh, the Celtics. Remember how they just kept getting their butt kicked by LeBron there for a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, I'm going to be really, I can't wait to see these two games if I can. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I was looking a couple of things on the Celtics. This surprised me. They're number two in the league in, in, in three-pointers attempted. Only Golden State's taken more. They're number six in uh, making them, you know, percentage-wise. So let's see how the Cavs defend that. Um, and then also, uh, defensively, of course, they're top five. You still got to play some sort of defense in this league. Uh, the Cavs, by the way, have dropped to three. It just it's a couple it's a tenth of a percentage point behind uh, Milwaukee and, and Memphis. But uh, you look at those top defensive teams; they're the teams that are going to be in the playoffs. They're the teams that generally are playing well. You still got to play it, and that's the fortunate thing that uh, I like about the Cavs. And you know, people want the team to run up and down some. But if you want Evan Mobley and, and Allen to be part of your offense, you just sometimes got to slow it down. There are times, and it's great if um, Donovan is making that three-point shot, but sometimes it's not there, and he passes up a chance to go and drive to the rim. And that also gets your big guy involved, because even if Donovan misses on some of those drives, it creates chaos for the defense, and here comes Allen or Mobley coming in for their offensive rebound. Yep, a couple of seven-footers from either side. So, yeah. All right, Terry, it's going to be a good week of basketball here for the Cavs. Uh, we're taping this on Monday, and two days from now on Wednesday, they're at Boston, then a home game Saturday against Detroit. And then next Monday, they're home against Boston, and then they hit the road. The NBA has been doing this a little bit toward the end of the season, Terry. 
um, double road games against the same team. And next Wednesday and Friday, the Cavs are at Miami on March 8th and March 10th. So playing four games against potential playoff team. Well, one for sure, two potential playoff teams. So it's going to be some good basketball. So, uh, all right, Terry, two weeks from today, you are leaving to go to Goodyear to cover spring training. Uh, any thoughts on the guardians early in spring training? I know it's been kind of, a there's been some injuries and, and the games just started on Saturday, but, um, any thoughts on the guardians so far? It's always, cause I used to cover baseball. So I went through, um, full spring trainings, you know, middle of February till the end. I did it with, um, Baltimore for one year in 79. Then I did it 83, 84 with the tribe. So I did, um, six of them. And this time of year, you're kind of looking at, uh, you start with who's hurt and who's healthy, especially if you have some guys coming off injuries. It's sort of boring, really. Uh, if you're a really bad team, sometimes you're looking at some of the prospects, but they're out there just for a minimum amount of time. Uh, of course, the nice thing this year is all the rule changes that they're talking about. Uh, I'm I'm anxious by the time I get out there, they'll be pitching three, four innings, and hopefully some of the Guys like Valera that I want to see, Ro- 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 Brian Rocaccio. Rocaccio, I always get his name messed up. The shortstop. Brian. Is that how you say his first name? Brian, right? Yeah, Rocaccio. <laughs> and he is, his nickname is the professor because he's supposed to be so smart for his age of 21 as a shortstop. And I'm anxious to see him play because they're not going to bring back uh, Rosario unless some shocking thing you know, happens with him taking a short-term deal. They've got all these shortstops they like. They have Arias and they have Riccaccio, and they've got this Angel Martinez they like a lot too. So these are guys I want to see. Then I got to ask Roberta who she likes, and she last time she didn't go with to spring training last year with me because it was, if you remember a year ago, everything was all messed up and when spring training was going to start, and so we we just couldn't plan it. So we have to see the last time um, she was there, she pulled out Stephen Kwan out of a minor league game. So we'll see who she likes this year. And I was stuck on Owen Miller. All the, uh, all those fantasy players will be eagerly, eagerly awaiting her pick for her the pick, year. Yeah. <laughs> you may have to, it's a pick and wait though. Cause remember that was 2021. That's right. so. Yeah. It's like when you stash a, an NBA draft prospect in Europe for a couple of years. Right? <laughs> That's right. So it's like, so she saw this guy though, when he played in a ball and a little bit of double leg. Oh, I really like him. I think he's going to be good. Uh, classic. So Terry, I was reading a story in, um, on CNN a couple of weeks ago by a, a gentleman named Frederick J. Frommer, and the headline was, A Clock Saved the NBA, Can It Now Save Baseball? Mm-hmm. And I want to get your thoughts on what you think of what's going on with it. The, so the, there's the pitch timer now where there's a 15-second timer mm-hmm. between each pitch. If the bases are empty, you get 20 seconds if there's a runner on base. Uh, the pitcher has to go into his motion before the clock runs out, and the batter has to be in the box and looking at the pitcher with eight seconds left on the clock. Uh, the games have been probably 20 to 25 minutes shorter already. And, of course, when they come up with these uh, tr- trials, they they put them in the minor leagues first, and they've found that they're working in terms of shortening the games, getting them around 230, 240 in terms of time. The pace is better. There's not so much standing around. Uh how do you feel about the pitch clock? There's already been some one game was already decided where the pitch clock uh, ran out and uh, you know a, a ball was awarded and it decided the game. I th- was it a ball or a strike on the, I can't remember which one, but the game basically ended because the batter wasn't ready. I think was what it was. But how do you feel about all the the, the 
timing of baseball, given that you've been covering the game for, for a long time? Well, in the days when I was a kid, and even when I, for example, broke in covering the Orioles in 79, you just didn't get out of the box after every pitch. I remember the big thing was when I came to cover Cleveland after Baltimore, and they had Mike Hargrove, the human rain delay. And now they're all human rain delays. They all get out of the box, and they all fix their hat and put their put their gloves back on and all that stuff. But he was doing it, and it really stood out because it was rare. And so good. Dump that junk. Get in there and bat. They will adjust. You know what you've lost for that 30 or 40 minutes? Nothing. You lost <laughs> nothing unless you want to see a pitcher stare at the birds, invisible birds flying overhead, or, you know, a batter who can't quite figure out if his neck itches or if his glove isn't on right or whatever it is is uncomfortable. We've lost nothing. You can play at a faster pace. It wasn't a big issue many years ago because you got into the box and you stayed there. And if not, in fact, if you started stepping out on great pitchers in the past of the old days of the 60s and 70s, they would just deck you when you got back in. <laughs> um, bald, the Baltimore Orioles, who, you know, Earl Weaver really taught me so much baseball. It was like going to baseball graduate school. He he was very uh, guarded about it. He did not want them throwing at people's heads. So he said, you know, I want to deck a guy, throw at his knees. Said, because boy, what does that do? Cuts the legs out from under them. Down they go, and they're in their dirt. And so that's what you would get if you like stepped out on a guy twice or something. Get in there and bat, and make the pitcher get out there and throw the ball, and that's it. And I, you know, they don't like it because they're used to doing other stuff. But all of us know whether things we have to adjust to in life because of an illness or our job changes or whatever. I mean, I started writing on a typewriter. It would be <laughs> dumb to write on a typewriter now. And then I started where you would just write on a computer and email it in and people like you would do all the work. You know, you would pick out the pictures and you would write the headlines and all that. Well, now, you know, it's up to the writer to do that, to post it online. And then you go back and make sure the coding is right and the pictures are there and so on. Businesses change all the time in how they do business for a variety of reasons. And the fact that baseball did this, I want to see how it all works out, but good. I'm with you hundred percent, Terry. I, you know, I went to a minor league game about five years ago in Norfolk that mm -hmm. see the tides play and they had a pitch clock and the game was over in two hours and 38 minutes or something. It was wonderful. Nice night out. Got out of there. And like, what's being lost? Like you said, nothing. The, the, nothing. the advertisers are happy because the commercial breaks are the same. It's all just dead space. So um, what about the shift, Terry? I want to talk about that for a minute. They're prohibiting shifts. There has to be two infielders on each side of second base. And I thought this was really interesting. They're going to use like lasers technology or whatever to, <laughs> to make sure that every diamond has the same amount of dirt and, and, and grass so that teams aren't doctoring their fields to, to make more dirt or more grass so they can play the advantage. Why I mean, did they do that in the old days? Too. Oh yeah. You remember they used to cut the grass different oh, heights for a team that would yeah. long, leave it longer for a, t a team that wanted a bunt and like, <laughs> so it was really a, cracking if down. A, if a guy it. was a sinker ball pitcher, it was the same thing. They would really do that. Uh, they even doctored the, 
if you had a, a guy or two that's a really good bunter, they doctored the uh, baseline so that it was like just a little small mini hill. So, you know how you see that ball roll down that chalk line and all of a sudden yep. it, it, it goes foul <laughs> or fair? They would mess with that too. So those are all things that I – mean, actually, I kind of liked all that stuff, but uh, that's gone. My favorite um, – they went more. I wanted to do something about the shift, but I was not as extreme. My view was you could have, you could put seven guys within four feet of each other if you want to, but you must. Everybody must have one foot on the dirt, as opposed to, you know, which side of second base you are or that huh. kind of thing. So that way, you still want to put three side guys on the right side of the infield. Fine, they just can't play short right, short right field. Oh, uh, okay. See, and I just thought that would eliminate some of the who's on what side of second base or whatever. Yeah, well, we'll see how that – this is just, a, you know, a way for them to get more offense into the game. Yeah. And one thing I want to mention, so listeners know, Terry, of course, as soon as a rule comes out, people's in the game, their first thought is, how do I get around it or how can mm-hmm. I? And you cannot have, like, your shortstop do a running sprint as the ball is being delivered and end up on the other side of second base from his usual shortstop spot to get three guys on the right side as the ball's coming over home plate. They're going to be not allowing that. Uh, you can't get a running start. You have to be stationary, I think, or at least not trying to cross the line uh, that goes through the second base mound line. So anyway, no running starts to try and load up the infield. So I, I really thought the thing that about the shift that where it really took hits away is when you were able to play those guys, you know, 10, 20 feet deep in the outfield, maybe even more, because um, these guys hit the ball so hard in the big leagues that um, you still have time to throw most of them out, you know, from short right field or that. That was my thinking on one dirt, one foot on the dirt. Because uh, then he could hit a bullet right at you, but pretty much it's right at you. Uh, so it isn't like, man, that thing was right between where there's nobody there. And, and look um, where he is now. We'll see. I, I mean, one of the theories of people like Jose Ramirez and some of these others pull the ball a lot, their average are going to jump up. I want to see if that's true. Uh, Francona made an interesting point the other way. Because he, he is like old school. He hates to pull the ball launch angle junk. He hates that. Launch angle means you, you uppercut everything and try to hit it out and pull it. And you, you were doing that as a reaction to the shift where they would catch those ground balls deep in the out in the you know short right field. Hit it, hit in the air and hit it out. And so what he really liked, and that, that's where the Guardians incorporated that, especially last year is like the old hit them where it ain't, they ain't, you know, we will cure and all that stuff. So they put all those guys over on the left side, hit it to the right, uh, take your time. And so he doesn't want people to go back to thinking they could pull everything just because of the new shift rules. Cause he just thinks, and I agree, makes from you get back to more strikeouts and all that junk. Yeah. And changing your swing all the time, man, it's, yeah. it's, it's like golf. There's always something to be worried about. So. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so Terry, you'll be out there in a couple of weeks, and I can't wait to see what you, to hear what you think about uh, all these things when you see them in person. I, I really am looking forward to that. So, all right, um, we still have a couple of uh, letters coming in. We came up with this idea about a month ago when Terry and I were talking about uh, Sean Payton. Terry had an idea of having people send in emails about famous or notable athletes they played against. We got a couple more here that I think we can squeeze in, Terry. So, all right, this first one is from Josh Watts. He says he's the son of the former Hudson coach, Wayne Watts. Uh, 
Oh, I remember him. Do you really? I was going to yeah, ask. He's a good, you ba- very good him? basketball coach. Yes. All right. So this story from Josh, he says, uh, my athletic experience against former Walsh High School basketball player, OSU football player, and current Tennessee Titans head coach Mike Vrabel. <laughs> in the early 1990s, I played high school basketball for Hudson. We went to a basketball team camp, and one game got matched up against Walsh. I was a sophomore shooting guard, about 5'6", and maybe 145 pounds. The play had me setting a screen on the block for center. Well, Mike Vrabel, who was close to 300 pounds, was guarding him. I came down, got in the correct position, and tried to hold my ground. Vrabel Vrabel went through me like I wasn't even there. He gave me a forearm shiver, and the next thing I knew, I was picking myself up off the ground at a three-point line. I have no idea if we scored on the play or not. (laughs) Flash forward to my time at Ohio State. I was in a pickup league, and one of the opposing teams we were going to play was a bunch of defensive football players. My friends were pumped up about this to play them and were convinced we could beat them. I kept trying to tell them that we were going to get beat and probably beat up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One friend thought it was his destiny to block Vrabel, who was now an All-American defensive lineman. I told him this was not realistic. Anyway, off the tip, Luke Fickle, <laughs> mm-hmm. who, who has been longtime friends with Mike Vrabel for years and years, tips it to a linebacker and they get a dunk to start the game. My friend did get an opportunity for a block, but he was sent back to the padded walls when he challenged Vrabel and got called for the foul. I knew better and stayed around the perimeter. <laughs> That's from Josh Watts. Thanks for sending that in, Josh. And we forget about um, – I remember I, I, I used to play a lot of pickup basketball. It wasn't particularly good, but you know I could hold my own with, with high school kids or whatever in those type of games. But even when I would get in some pickup games at Cleveland State or whatever with guys who are perhaps walk-ons or you know they're on scholarship but on the end of the bench, um, they would wipe out the court with them. They would just they would kill us. I mean, it's a different type. A Division One athlete is a different different breed of athlete. Yeah, regardless of which sport, right? Yeah, it's and like, they all yeah. could play three or four sports, which isn't fair, but they can. All right, this next one is from Steve from Suffield, and he says, Hey, Terry, in the 60s and 70s, I caddied in the Akron area for several major tournament winners. These included Denny Shute, Tommy Bolt, Byron Nelson, Johnny Miller, Ken Venturi, plus other PGA pros who won tournaments but not majors like J.C. Sneed, Dan Sykes, and Bruce Devlin. I also caddied in the same pairing as Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Bruce mm. Crampton, Bob Golby, Dave Marr, and Hale Irwin. Also, Mike Douglas, who emceed a national TV talk <laughs> show. He was a great guy and a really good player. And John Morrow, who played center for the Browns, loved those show guys. That was from Steve from Suffield. So thanks for that, Steve. Sounds like some huge golf names there you got. Whenever to- you go to a tournament and you hear those guys hit that ball, it's just a different sound when they drive the ball than when even a pretty good uh, uh amateur golfer hits it it's just it's kind of like when you you know you're if you're around the batting cage and you listen and 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 you're a big time hitter is up there it's just you don't even have to know where the ball won't go i could never hit the ball like that yep it sounded like a good shot right you can tell right away so um well we got a couple more of those i think we'll wrap this up next week terry but thanks for sending those in we really appreciate our listeners doing that some great fun stories we've heard here so Terry, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes talking about your faith column from last weekend, which was about cell phones. And you wrote about just how they have taken over our lives. And it's people, you know, from high school age on up to, like you said, people who are on Medicare and, and it's it's all encompassing. And, and you wrote about kind of what it's done to us and kind of how we should be thinking about our phones. 
I've gotten a couple emails like, well, why do you hate cell phones? And this, my cell phone helps me get, of course, cell phones are good. I don't want to go back to, I don't want to go back to the typewriter. I don't want to go back to the, the rotary phone. You know, I like having a cell phone with me, but I don't, by the way, when I it started, when I was working out and was just driving me nuts, these people just sitting on the weight machine for 15 minutes or so. And I count time. I time one person was 18 minutes. Just, going through their messages and you can't, I, I have to admit when I work out, cause I, I use it as therapy. I leave my cell phone in the car. Um, but you know, it's just the, and this, the scary thing, if you put in screen time, you know, when it comes up and you find out how much time you've really spent just scrolling and scrolling. Um, I had a lot of questions about, you know, have you done, have you, have you looked at your cell phone and, you know, different times that, day and that including things like 62 percent of people admitted they looked at the cell phone while they're in the bathroom on the toilet and it's like okay <laughs> and i refuse to answer that question because it may incriminate me uh so <laughs> it's just in what about five different levels so but it, it, it does show how encompassing it is and uh, i just kind of wrote about it because it was one of those there and, and you know the bible talks about idols and people um bowing down and praying at the golden calf or whatever. How about this? This is a survey. It's all in my faith com. A third of the people said if they had to pick between their cell phone and their pet, they're picking the cell phone. That crazy. Yeah. And I bet others if, would probably even go farther. If you took the cell phone away from them about a week later, they'd be willing to get rid of the beagle to get the phone back. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it's something. The the one the, the one that really hit me, Terry. You talked about you're talking to somebody and their yeah. phone pings, and uh, you know, there's an old Seinfeld line that that uh, guys don't want to know what's on TV; they want to know what else is on TV. Yeah, <laughs> they're always flipping channels, and yeah. and it, it made me think of that because it's like I'm talking to you, but there's someone else who's not even here that wants to talk to you or ping you or send you a right. thing. Like they're more important than. The person standing right in front, not, not that it's me, but I mean, any, any two people. Anybody, yeah, they do. Yeah. It's you a, should it's give a them the respect to have like a, a, a conversation without like your phone pings when all of a sudden, oh, yeah, well, you're not here anymore. This phone is more important than what mm -hmm. we're talking about. And I think that happens all the time. And it, it's it's terrible. Yeah. And also people have their phones set up to ping for about anything, too. Um, and I get it if you're, you know, you have an elderly person or you're, you're there's things where you're just worried about it, but I think it's the, the, uh, tyranny of the urgent, you know, it, it, it really does do that to people. So it was an interesting column. I'm getting some feedback, uh, uh, you know, basically, uh, some people agree. Others say, you know, you're just a primate. Why don't you go back to like, you know, <laughs> live in your cave. Um, but for the most part, I think most of us know we're, and I'm saying we, we're probably on our phone too much. I would agree. It's a tool. I mean, yeah. it's a tool and it should be used as a tool and it's not, it's not something that we should let consume our every waking moment. So check that column out. It's worth a read. It was in Sunday's Plain Dealer and on cleveland.com last Saturday. Definitely worth a few minutes of your time. So, all right, Terry, we got some Hey Terry questions here and we're going to lead off with longtime friend of the podcast, Kathleen Thompson who has, I don't think we've heard from her in a couple months, but yeah. she's back with a Cavs question. She says, hey, Terry, I'm concerned about the Cavs bench. Who's going to provide the scoring? Thanks. 
<laughs> on the road here. So it's a great question because it it's, it's like she didn't have any suggestions right now either. Um, and that is a big deal. Right now, Rubio's shot is broken. If you look at it, it's a mess. He's flat-footed. He's lining it. He still sets up people and does a lot of really good things. I want him out there. But he's really struggling to make a shot. Chetty Osman, you never know, good Chetty, bad Chetty. Um, I don't think Dean Wade is 100% physical yet. He's in there playing some, but uh, he's a, he doesn't look as good. And that has been a problem. And we'll see with Danny Green, but I watched him pretty close. I stayed and watched garbage time last night. I wanted to see him. And he made a nice three-pointer from the corner. But overall, he's, you know, remember, he's coming off ACL surgery. So is Rubio. They don't look real great right now. So I, the answer is, I don't know. And the other answer is, when the playoffs come, they're going to play those starters really heavy minutes. So, well, and people wanted Kevin Love, but, you know, he was struggling. Now, we'll see. He, they're starting him with the heat. He, he went... Um, Scoreless in 22 minutes the other night, and then his last game, uh, he was, uh, I believe, 4 for 11. He had like 12 points or something. Interesting thing, he's played 48 minutes, uh, David, so far in Miami. He's got 21 rebounds, so he's really hitting the boards like he always did. Not surprising. I caught his. I caught some of his first game with the Heat, Terry, and about ten minutes of it, and I saw him miss a three on a shot that looked like a lot of the ones we saw after his injury, and then he drew yeah. a charge. <laughs> yeah, it was like the vintage ten minutes of Kevin Love. So. Yeah, you know, it's a tough thing. He has that. Um, uh, it's a line drive shot for him, and it seems like if his back, which I heard is actually the injury that is bothering him more than the thumb, uh, that could be a problem with it but boy if they had the kevin love of last year on this year's team wow would they have won a lot more games because that's what they're missing oh finally karis lavert what happened to this guy since uh it i think his last 10 games he's averaging like six and a half points and he's sometimes he's out there he's doing nothing I don't know what's going on there because he's the guy that he's averaged 20 points in this league. He's not old. Well, and you'd think too, Terry, after the trade deadline pass, that would have been a load off his shoulders and he'd be a little bit more assertive. Worse. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so. know what's going on there. All right. Uh, we have time for one more question here. And I, I know last week I promised we would get to this one from Paul Cosgrove, but it's a little bit involved and we're running short on time. So Paul, I'm sorry. We're going to hold you one more <laughs> week. Paul. I don't, I don't want to short shrift it. He's got a great question about helmets. Okay. Um, and so it's not it's something we can hold for a week. It's not something we need to get to today. But this one is from Jim Hopkins. And he says, hey, Terry, I doubt that Mike Prefer became a bad special teams coach overnight. Could this be more of a reflection of Andrew Barry and the bottom 30% of the Browns roster, which is what, where a lot of the special teams guys come from? You think it was talent, special teams talent? I mean, you think... Who's the special team star on the Browns? And not a lot of names pop to your mind in terms of a guy who excels there. Probably didn't help him. You know, the, probably their special team star is, is, is the, 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 sen, the center, Charlie Hewlett, who is there. You know, he's, they have their long snapper is very good. <laughs> yeah, they got a great long snapper. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting point. I'm sure that's the one that Prefer would make. Uh, I would just argue, though, when you're ranking 28th and 30th in back-to-back years, now they got up to, I think it was 18th this year, 
but even still, what were they average? Gave up 12 yards per uh, return on punts, which was the worst in the NFL. Mm -hmm. Failed to come up with a couple of onside kicks. Schematically, uh, I was told they just didn't like what he was doing. And I do hope with Bubba coming in here that they will give more thought to uh, special teams, maybe um, linebackers slash defensive backs that can help. Or that Ventrone can help them pick out which ones can help. See, that's another thing. When you're looking at some of these extra guys, um, maybe that that would be uh, something that could help too. So, uh, but it's a it's a decent question. But uh, you know, Barry's they brought in what Hakeem Grant on big money blew his Achilles. They drafted um, Cade York in the fourth round. By the way, Chase McLaughlin went over to kick for Bubba and he went from being the worst kicker in the NFL here to middle of the pack, maybe slightly better with Indianapolis. So I don't know what he did. Maybe it was nothing. It might just be that uh, he just got to kept kicking is getting better. But I thought I, that that was there. And there's a reason I think that Indianapolis uh, had the top were in the top 10 of special teams for the last five years. So that was pretty consistent. Yeah, it, it doesn't happen by accident. And you, like you said, the Browns were 18th, 30th, and 28th the last three years. So yeah. the numbers don't lie, especially three years worth of numbers. So, mm-hmm. All right, Terry, we're running up against it here. Do you have any book recommendations? Yeah, real quick. I was, oh, I was In fact, when I picked up my phone here and there, it's like because I, I, I remember the name of it, and I wanted to make sure. It's called Gone for, for Soldiers. Gone for Soldiers. The author is Jeff Shahara, who is known for – all the Civil War novels that he's done, you know, gods and, gender, gen, uh, gods and generals and many others, and also some others. I love this book because it's about the Mexican-American War, and it was like the junior varsity game for this Civil War. They're all in this book. Robert E. Lee, you know, General Grant, uh, General Grant, Robert E. Lee, um, you could just go through, you see all the connections of these guys from West Point, VMI, those places, and they were all down in Mexico. And this uh, you, uh, a war, which, for example, that Ulysses S. Grant thought they never should have fought in the first place was a land grab. Uh, so fascinating stuff. It's it's a part of American history that isn't gotten. And what I love about Shahara's stuff is you get it in story form, and it is a novel but Shahara is such a great researcher um, that you just get a tremendous feel for it. It reads real well, Gone for Soldiers. It's one of his best books, and it's totally ignored. But you can still find it, you know, around. All right. I know uh, what a history buff you are, Terry, so for you to like that one, it must really be good. So because you are steeped in history. So all right. So a programming note, we are going to be taking next week off because I'm off next week. We'll be back in two weeks. Anything else, Terry? That'll do it. All right. If you want to get a question, comment on the podcast, send it to sports at cleveland.com and put Hey Terry or Terry's Talking in the subject line. We will try to get it on. Have a great week. Enjoy the basketball, and we'll see you next time on Terry's Talking.